This is an APTA podcast. Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. Hello, this is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ. I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast, and I'm very pleased today to have as my guest, Dr. Annaline Malfleet. Welcome, Annaline. Thank you. She's with the Pain in Motion Research Group in the Department of Physiotherapy, Human Physiology, and Anatomy at Frey University in Brussels, Belgium. We're going to talk about an article that she's recently published in PTJ, which I really found very interesting and quite provocative, actually. The title is Obesity Hurts, the Why and the How of Integrating Weight Reduction in Chronic Pain Management. So I really am pleased to be able to discuss your paper with our listeners today. Uh, Let me start by talking about some of what you wrote about in the beginning of your paper. You mentioned that overweight and obesity are clearly identified as risk factors for the development of pain. As, As you look at the evidence, how clear is it that overweight leads to chronic pain in contrast to chronic pain leading to overweight? Well, that's a bit uh, the question of yeah, the chicken and the egg, as we say it. There's one meta-analysis which was uh, published quite recently, 2018, and it's specifically focused on obesity as a risk factor only in chronic low back pain, so uh, in, in actually a subgroup of the chronic pain population. But as it's the largest subpopulation of chronic pain, we um, included it in our paper as well. And within the meta-analysis, there were 10 cohort studies. And yeah, based on, on those cohort studies, they found a statistically significant association between baseline obesity and the incidence of low back pain compared to the people who had normal weight at, um, at baseline. And if we look at the pooled odds ratios, it was a 1.36. And they also did some sub-analysis, which focused more on the other aspects, like, for example, body composition, but also body mass index. And there they again found that an increased body mass index was associated with an increased incidence of low back pain, both in men and women. So it was uh, in both sexes. Now, for the general chronic pain populations, such meta-analysis is is not available. So we cannot draw very strict conclusions for the general population. Um, But for example, there is also uh, another paper that focused specifically on children with chronic pain. And they also found an um, association between the... um, the presence of obesity and musculoskeletal pain. But again, well, there it was an, a cross-sectional study because, and then, yeah, because of the, the design, they were unable to draw any conclusions on causality or on the, the nature of the relationship. So, well, if we look specifically at low back pain, we can indeed say obesity or overweight is an, uh, a risk factor for chronic pain. And in general, for the complete chronic pain population, we can clearly say that there is an association between both. Okay. Well, that's very helpful. Let's talk a little bit about um, interventions to help people lose weight. 
In your paper, you, you talk about the fact that there is evidence of clinical effectiveness for weight reduction interventions for chronic non-cancer pain sufferers who have excess body weight. Do, do we, does the literature indicate what strategies are most effective? Yes, well, the review you are referring to is, is also a very recent one. It was published in uh, 2020, and it was an uh, umbrella review. That's something we, we found more often now, more recently, the, the umbrella review. So it included three previously published systematic reviews, but also two non-randomized studies. And when you look at the, the papers included in the umbrella review in the the complete review, there were actually several interventions included. So um, the weight interventions, they were either uh, focusing on diet specifically or exercise specifically, or they did a combination of both. Now, the diet intervention, so the one that uh, focused only on diet or that focused on diet in general, I mean, they often involved a calorie restriction. So sometimes they even went as low as only 415 kilocalories per day, which is very, very low. But so that's, I think, the most often used strategy, at least also in uh, in research for chronic pain, chronic non-cancer pain. And the exercise programs, they mainly included aerobic strength and uh, stretching exercises. And then some of these interventions were monodisciplinary. Some of these interventions were multidisciplinary. If they were including multiple disciplines, it often involved a psychologist and a physiotherapist and, of course, also a dietitian. But of course, the question is which intervention is best because they have a variety of interventions. And it seems that an intervention that uses diet alone or the combination of diet and exercise is better than an intervention that uses exercises alone. So the dietary component within the uh, interventions appears to be very important. And they see that exercise-only programs, they often do not result in um, a rate reduction when comparing it to a control intervention or a waitlist group. I did not find anything on the difference between diet-only and diet-plus exercise, so I cannot give any um, results or any indication in which of those two is, uh, is better. And specifically, well... In general, if we look at it from a behavioral perspective and for, for, from an, um, let's say, more long-term perspective, I think it's always very good to combine diet and exercise um, because we know from weight reduction literature that is unrelated to chronic pain that it's actually not very good to do a really strict calorie restriction, not in terms of weight reduction because calorie restriction does certainly lead to uh, weight reduction. But if people then again change to a normal diet or a diet, let's say normal in calories, they often again gain weight. So it's better to focus from the beginning on a behavioral approach that combines a more healthy diet with an, uh, a moderate calorie restriction to combine that with exercises, because that's often something that people can maintain at long term. And then the weight reduction can also be maintained at, uh, at long term. Okay, and then in some respects, that provides the evidence foundation for your argument in your article. And so let's let's talk about the role of the physical therapist. You make the case that in addition to assessing a person's BMI, when you're doing a history with a patient who's 
got chronic pain and is overweight or obese, one should be looking at both diet and habits along with physical activity and sedentary behavior. So are you, in fact, advocating that the physical therapist should be doing dietary assessments with patients who fit this category? Well, I think a, a physical therapist, a physiotherapist should at least consider nutrition on a basic level in, uh, in clinical assessments. Um, for example, using a food frequency questionnaire or using a food diary, it's uh, something that's, that gives you a lot of information and it can be easily sent in advance to a patient so you don't have to lose any time in doing the assessment during your clinical practice. Um, and you don't have to, to lose too much time questioning it. Um, and in general, well, I think if you, if you consider a lifestyle focus for treating your patient with uh, chronic pain, which I think is, is very relevant to, um, to consider that, it almost feels like it's obvious that you should assess diet at least at some level. Um, because you, well, with your patient for chronic pain patients uh, for in a, in, a, in a physical therapy or a physiotherapy setting, we know that physical activity, physical exercises, they are very important. They should form the core of your treatment. So if you want to focus on these physical activity, physical uh, exercises, I think you, you logically want to know what your patient's energy intake is, because in, in my opinion, it really goes hand in hand, um, both of those aspects. Um, that's something we also describe in the paper as energy balanced behavior. You, you take your energy in using foods, using drinks, and you will use your energy within or, or just by um, your metabolism, but also, of course, by uh, physical activity. And if that system is in balance, your uh, weight will remain the same. But if your energy intake is higher than your energy expenditure, you will gain weight. And given yeah, the negative aspects or the negative consequences of overweight and obesity on chronic pain, I think you always need to consider not only the uh, energy expenditure during the physical activity, but also the um, energy intake during um, by food and drinks. How would you respond to the critic who's going to say, well, that's well and good, but the kinds of a dietary assessment you're advocating are, are, first of all, outside the scope of practice for a physiotherapist. And it's not very practical given the constraints on productivity in so many practice environments. Yeah. Well, um, so maybe let's first talk about the scope of, um, of physiotherapy, because um, I think there are two elements in, uh, in the question. Also, I think if we look at the general evolution in, in literature on the role of physiotherapy in general, I think we can only conclude that the role or the scope of a physiotherapist is broader than it maybe once was. And again, if you consider chronic pain as a lifestyle problem, I think you cannot manage it with physical activity or exercise therapy alone. So it implies that as a physiotherapist, as a physical therapist, you also need to consider things like sleep, like stress, like diet. And as we also see in other domains of physical therapy, we can become very specialized in uh, certain pathologies. 
For example, if you are a physiotherapist who is working on a daily basis with people with respiratory problems, they often also get extra training. They often also become an, uh, an expert in um, the field. While that physiotherapist might not be the best person to treat an, uh, a patient with, with chronic pain and vice versa. So I think we, we should really consider a physiotherapist or a physical therapist within that broad scope but also within an, well, a new way of looking at it at, at, in, in a um, more specialized structure. You want, you, as a chronic pain patient, you don't want to go to the physiotherapist who is more involved in respiratory problems, of course. So in that light, I think a physical therapist dealing with chronic pain should be considering a lot of other factors like sleep, like diet, etc. But of course, Given the complexity of chronic pain, it might be that it's really a lot for a physiotherapist to be really an expert in each of those domains. So I guess for a physiotherapist, it still, it's still logical that physical activity and physical exercises are the, um, the basis of the intervention. Then they can still specialize within um, those, well, from that basis, they can still specialize in, uh, in other domains Yet I do think you should be aware of your own limits. You should be aware of your own well limits in, in knowledge, in skills and in expertise. And you should, of course, refer a patient towards specialized care if you feel that that's, uh, that that's needed. And even in an ideal world, I think it would be best if a complex case, which is always the case in, in chronic pain patients, a complex case should be uh, treated in a multidisciplinary or even a transdisciplinary setting. I think that's um, always um, has so many advantages if several disciplines are, uh, are working together. Um, but since, well, that's not always possible, it's, uh, it's not always feasible. And if you know that, for example, overweight or obesity or sleep problems or other lifestyle problems have such an impact on your treatment outcome. And then you, the second part of your question was related to therapists' productivity. Yes. So, well, it's a bit of a more difficult question for me because, well, I'm from Belgium, so I'm not fully aware of uh, how the system in the U.S. works. But I could understand that a more behavioral approach, including diet, is not maybe not considered as an, um, a highly productive strategy because it does not offer something like an, an instant award the, um, or an instant reward. The, um, a behavioral approach often needs an, uh, a, some time investment to pay off, but we do see that in the long term, they specifically aim to empower our patients to maintain a healthy lifestyle. So I think if you look at it from a more let's say, meta perspective, also from maybe a more health economic perspective, those kind of strategies would pay off. Now, if you really consider it as an, um, yeah, really from the productivity perspective, like it has to be productive right now, I think the best way to implement such strategies within clinical practice would be the use of a blended strategy where you would offer parts of, for example, the assessment, but also parts of maybe nutritional education in an online platform where, for example, the patient is taught to screen his own diet, his, um, 
diet in a diary where he's able to look for unhealthy behavior, healthy behavior where he is taught online how to switch the unhealthy behavior. And that way, within clinical practice, you probably would only need to use an, a small amount of your time to guide your patient, to help your patient. And you would be able to spend most of the time to things that might be considered as more um, productive. Okay, I, I, I get your point. If I could sum up what I hear you arguing is, for the first part, if you're going to be a chronic pain specialist as a physiotherapist, you need to develop some broader expertise if you hope to be effective with these patients. And then in, with respect to productivity, I hear you saying you acknowledge that in certain cultures, it's going to be more challenging than in others, but that there are alternatives to just face-to-face -face interactions, such as the use of technology and so forth. Indeed. And I think those make sense. Now, that requires, uh, all of what you've just talked about requires some expertise in long-term behavior change. And um, I wonder if, if you've given any thought to what kinds of education and training do you think physiotherapists should have so that they can be effective as behavior change agents, not only in terms of diet, but also in terms of exercise and sedentary lifestyle. We yes. know the literature is clear that education alone is not effective. So what kind of education training should therapists have? Well, I think if you look at an, the practice of a physiotherapist, they probably already have some expertise in behavioral change because we are working with our patients to get them physically active or to change some kind of behavior. If we want to have a patient who performs the exercises we prescribe, we will need some kind of um, expertise in behavioral change to make that happen. But I guess the, the main training that would be required is the aspect related to um, guiding and, and, and coaching, which probably mainly comes down to communication techniques. So I guess the, um, at least also if I look at, for example, the, the, the education I received personally, motivational interviewing or motivational communication techniques, they were not very present in my education and, and also, well, not in the education worldwide of a physiotherapist. So I guess not only within the, the topic that we are talking about now, not only related to diet, but indeed also related to physical activity, to exercises. I think it would be very important to integrate motivational interviewing techniques, motivational communication um, in, the, uh, in the training of a physiotherapist. Because in the beginning of behavioral change, you want to use your communication to find a discrepancy between the behavior that the patient is setting right now and the behavior you actually want to evolve to, um, the, the, the healthier behavior. Um, and also in the later phases of behavioral change, when it comes down to re maintaining a, a newly set healthy behavior, it also comes down to communication, to motivational interviewing, to look at the challenges the patient is facing, to find the, the barriers the patient is facing and to find new ways or uh, better ways to deal with them. So I think... Motivational communication, motivational interviewing, that would be my main advice for extra training. Well, Dr. Malfleet, I really 
Thank you, first of all, for publishing your work in PTJ. I think you're raising important issues for physiotherapists to be thinking about. And I want to encourage um, our listeners to take a look at uh, the article in PTJ. I, I really think you raise some important issues that need to be um, carefully thought about if we're going to be effective in working with people who are suffering from chronic pain. So thank you very much for joining me today. It was my pleasure. This is an APTA podcast.